about that program is that if a diploma theology student earns a good enough GPA over their first 20 credits, they can appeal to the academic dean for master's by exception, and then they can just go right on and do the full master's degree if they, if they want to. So it's a, it's a great program that some of our students have taken advantage of. At our campus, we have a convenient Monday-only schedule. A lot of our students still are traveling quite a distance, and so we don't want to take people away from the church field very long. You know, most colleges, if you take a free credit class, it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, one hour. Well, we know that we've got people from quite a ways away wanting to come to our campus, so we just condense it. A three-hour class at our campus is at three hours on Monday, so Monday, Wednesday, Friday for an hour. Um, and we also have, uh, am, I, am I not on? Okay. Well, let's get this thing on then. Right. Well, we'll get the we'll get the sermon recorded anyway, and now you can hear me a little better. Um, I my my first church uh, was uh, uh, very small. We met in the Grange Hall. We had uh, less than ten in attendance for the the first three months. So uh, so you you guys are you guys are doing great. All right, you, you got way more than ten already. You're you're just you're cruising uh, for the first uh, seven years, uh, six and a half years or so. That I was at that church. We were in the Grange Hall. And we never had amplification. I just, I just burned out my voice every Sunday, leading the music and preaching the sermon, the whole deal like you're doing. So this is nice. A little amplification will help. Um, so we also have one-week January term classes. We had uh, classes just this week. Uh, uh, they just meet for a week and knock out a class. Then we offer some weekend courses that help us to attract some of our really distant commuters uh, who mostly take things online, but we'll try to draw them in for just a couple of weekends to knock out a class. And then online courses are available for the whole program. Uh, students can now earn their entire degree 100% online. So that's a, a pretty pretty helpful thing. Uh, this week I talked to a prospective student from Athol, Idaho. Well, that's like eight hours from Vancouver. He's like, okay, well, we got this online program. He said, yeah, I know. That's why I'm calling. So, well, you can do the 100% online. He said, really, 100%? That's awesome. He thought he'd have to come some. And so I told him, you know, I'd like you to come some weekends just to get to meet us and, and eyeball us a little bit. We want to eyeball you, but he can do the whole thing online. And the tuition is very affordable because of Southern Baptist support. Because churches like yours give to the cooperative program, that helps to subsidize the tuition for our students. So I've got a slide that shows uh, the, the relative expenses of this uh, compared to other seminaries in the Northwest. And so if, you, if you're a member of a Southern Baptist church in the Northwest, uh, that's, that's about what it would cost you before any scholarships, which almost everybody gets. Uh, but the full Master of Divinity would cost just a little over $20,000 with us. Or if you want to go to Seattle University School of Theology Ministry, you could pay over $70,000. That's, that's the, the biggest bar graph there. Anyway, we're half the expense or a third of the expense of other options in the Northwest. So uh, it really is a, a great value. And we have the highest accreditation, the uh, Association of Theological Schools and Western Association of States of Schools and Colleges. So it's not like we're giving you some you know, low-grade product. It's, it's the best you can get. But... Um, uh, for a really great discount because of cooperative program support. 
So um, I've got uh, a couple of uh, folders in the back on the table uh, with, with information. If anybody would like that, you can take it. And there are some magazines there called The Gateway that are free to take. And uh, the folders include my card and everything. If you're interested in seminary, I'd just love to talk to you a little bit more about it. Of course, Michael can help you with that as well since he's one of our stalwart students who's braving the highways every week to, to get there and, and do his work. So, yes. I'm sure, I'm sure you're testifying how awesome it is all the time here, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. With the seminary is great to drive. Yeah. yeah. Never any complaints about, uh, how, about the, how arduous it is? Uh, maybe a little bit. Yeah, pray for him. He's, he's doing great. Uh, we really appreciate how dedicated he's been. And he, he was a great online student, and now he's happy to be with us on campus. And, of course, we're glad to have him with us as well. Well, hey, it's Sunday morning. You usually have a sermon more than a commercial, right? So I think we should get on with it, don't you, don't you think? So let's, um, let's turn to the message today. The title of the message today is, What Do You Seek? It's from John 1, 35 through 39. John's gospel is a fascinating gospel for all kinds of reasons. One reason I'll say is that it seems to be one of the most common books of the Bible that people have recommended to them to read when they first become a Christian. I remember when I first became a Christian, the, the young man from my high school who helped to disciple me, his first recommendation was, read the Gospel of John. Well, why do people do that? Well, be, because we believe that the Gospel of John just flat out says some stuff. Just right on the bottom shelf, there it is. Easy to grab who Jesus claims to be and everything. And so just read the Gospel of John right off the bat because there's some easy, basic stuff that you can learn in the Gospel of John. But you know that uh, people who study uh, literature consider John's Gospel to be the highest literature in the whole New Testament? And when I went to the point of working on my PhD and trying to decide what I want to write my dissertation on, I was attracted to some very sophisticated things about John's gospel and decided that's what I want to do my, my dissertation on is the gospel of John. So it was the first book of the Bible that I was recommended to read when I became a Christian. And when I was working on my PhD in biblical studies, it was the book I turned to as well. One scholar a couple centuries ago said that John's gospel is a stream in which a child can wade and an elephant in which, uh, uh, and, a, and a river in which an elephant can swim. I blew the quote. How about that? All right, but uh, but so it's got it's got that dual level to it. It's really it's got some really easy uh, accessible stuff, but it's also got some profound mysteries that you can just continue to mine and get more and more and more out of it. So with that, let's look at uh, John 1, 35 through 39, and we'll think about how to interpret this passage. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. It says, again, the next day, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, what I want us to do this morning is think through this passage and think about this question. How should we interpret this passage? Is it a simple narrative, or does it have a deeper meaning? Many times in John's Gospel, that's a question we have to ask. 
because there are oftentimes when we're reading this gospel that you can read it at just a very basic level. Oh, so Jesus is walking along. These guys are following him. He says, hey, what do you want? And where, where are you hanging out today? Well, come see. And they hang, go and hang out with him. I mean, that's one way you can read this. Or is there something deeper going on as well? Well, how can we figure that out? Uh, in hermeneutics, hermeneutics is the study of interpreting scripture correctly. And so one of the basic lessons that I'm sure you've all learned by now is context, right? Well, what's, what's the context? So consider the context. And the context here is, well, it's the whole gospel, but specifically the context is the first chapter of John. You've all learned about the importance of context, right? But let me bring it home with, with uh, one more illustration. Um, when I was uh, a senior in high school, I scored 45 points in a high school basketball game. Okay? Now that sounds pretty good, but now let me give you the context. It was not the state championship game. It was not even a league game. In fact, it was not a varsity basketball game because I wasn't good enough to make the varsity team. All right? It was an intramural basketball game. All right? Is this starting to take the shine off my 45 points a little bit? Okay? There's more. Um, we had a pretty good intramural league, actually. We had a really good basketball program. Our coach was cranking out a lot of, a lot of well-coached players, not all of whom could make varsity. And so we fell out into the intramural league, and there were some pretty good players in the intramural league, except for this one team. And, of course, that was the team we were playing the night that I scored 45 points. We were playing the worst team in the league. And why were they the worst team in the league? Because they were composed primarily of stoners. And, yes, indeed, they were stoned that night. Okay? So... Is context important? <laughs> I scored 45 points in a high school basketball game. And then my friend, you know, if, if I'm just trying to boast about it, my, if my friend who was there that night, he would have to say, yeah, let me tell you about that night. <laughs> that was not varsity. That was against the stoners. And, 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 and also, it was mostly on lay-ins. My, my best friend, Mark Sagan, must have had about 24 rebounds that night. Outlet to me, lay-in at the other end. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the easiest shot in basketball. So, uh, so, you see how important context is? Well, what's the context of this passage, which we might be tempted to read in a very straightforward and mundane way? What's the context of John 1? Well, we're going to start clear at the beginning, which is where the gospel starts. And the first 18 verses of John are called the prologue. John's gospel can be seen as uh, presented like a drama. And in some plays, there's a narrator who actually, you know, someone is cast as a narrator, and the narrator actually comes between the curtains and explains some things sometimes. And sometimes that happens with a prologue before a play begins. Thornton Wilder used this technique in at least one of his plays. So uh, when you do that as a playwright, you're, you're not leaving anything to chance uh, with, your, with your audience, you know. It's like, I don't want them to miss the subtleties of things, so I'm going to just have a narrator explain some stuff right up front, okay? Folks, this is what the story is about. That's the technique that the author John used in this gospel. He has the voice of the narrator start this thing uh, for the first 18 verses so that we just know right up front we're talking about this stuff, okay? So let me... Uh, Play like I'm the narrator for a moment and give you uh, the, the, uh, the prologue of John's gospel. So he steps between the curtains, comes out before the play really begins, and he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, And cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And that's the prologue. And he goes back between the curtains and then the curtains open and finally actors take the stage, you know, if you think of it as a drama. And so who does take the stage in John's gospel? Well, John the Baptist takes the stage. I mean, you open, you open up the curtains and there's a scene of John the Baptist, maybe he's sitting by a fire in front of his tent or whatever, and then some dudes in robes approach him. These hotshot religious leaders from Jerusalem have been sent to ask about him. And so they ask him, hey, who are you? And they ask, they're asking John the Baptist, who are you? And his first answer is, I am not the Christ. We didn't ask you who you're not. We asked you who you are. You know? So the technique there is that we're, we're looking forward. See, who, do we, who do we want to meet as, as viewers of this play, as readers of this gospel, once we've heard this, this prologue? We want to meet this, this Jesus guy. You know? We want to meet this word who's become flesh. We want to meet this God in human flesh. That's who we want to meet. So we ask John the Baptist, he goes, well, I'm not, I'm not the one you're looking for, is basically what he's saying. So he's pointing forward right from the start. And then John testifies in, in that intermediate part. He's, he says, you know, I, I saw the Spirit descending like a dove and remaining upon him. And I testify to you that this is the Son of God. So before we ever get to our main passage of the day, we've had all this stuff, this lofty theological disclosure in, in the prologue. And then we've had John the Baptist testimony like this. And then we finally get, get down to uh, our passage of the day. So the context is pretty important, isn't it? Does it seem likely that this would just be a mundane, straight uh, narrative after such an amazing context? Seems like we might be being set up for the possibility of a deeper reading. Does that seem reasonable? So, second of all, note the significance of the people and the setting. Well, I've kind of already been talking about that. I mean, this is the Jesus from the prologue that we're dealing with who's finally taking the stage. He's finally there on stage. He's been talked about. 
He's been testified about, but now he's finally taken the stage. It's even kind of crafty how this is composed in that regard. Because at first, when he first takes the stage, if we, if we were going to stage this, this, this first chapter, the first way he would take the stage would be tangentially. You'd have John the Baptist center stage, and then you'd have, you'd have this figure walking along the side, and John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, oh, what, that, who, that guy? And then he back through another, another uh, you know, curtain and, and he disappears again. It's like, well, we just got a glimpse of him, but we didn't really meet him. He's almost like he's teasing us, you see, building the anticipation that we're going to finally actually meet this guy, but we haven't really fully met, uh, met him yet. So John the Baptist had said that to his disciples one day, and then when we finally get to today's text, he's saying it again. And he's saying, behold, the Lamb of God. It's like he's saying, Hint, hint, you guys are disciples of me. Why? Well, because I'm the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way for the, the way of the Lord. Well, I'm pointing you to him. I'm telling you for the second day in a row, behold the Lamb of God. In other words, hey, knuckleheads, quit following me. And I'm passing the baton. Follow that guy. I'm just here to set the table. I'm trying to get you to go with the real, the guy that's the real deal. And that's him. And so finally, in today's text, that's what they did. They, they, they finally caught on and they began to follow him. So the significance of the people in the setting is that this is, this is the word made flesh that we're talking about. And this is his would-be first disciple. So it's a pretty significant situation. And the physical setting is, is out by the Jordan River where John the Baptist has, has been drawing all Israel to him with his message of repentance and preparing the way for the Messiah. Pretty amazing setting. And then third, in our notes, examine the actions and words. I mean, if you want to understand Scripture well, you just got to get right down to the nuts and bolts and look carefully at exactly what is written and what exactly is being said. Well, first of all, it indicates that the two disciples are already following. They're following Jesus. Look what it says there in 37 and 38. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following uh, that's not a mistake that John's using that term follow, and he even uses it twice here to kind of give it some extra emphasis in case, in case we're like John the Baptist's disciples and need the extra nudge, you know. I'm, t- I'm mentioning the following twice here. Are you guys catching on? Are you you paying attention, readers? Because follow is a key word of discipleship in all four Gospels. How did Jesus call Peter and John uh, to be his followers in the other Gospels? They were by the, by the Sea of Galilee, washing their nets, and he says... Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. That's the basic idea of uh, discipleship, right? Is to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Sometimes that's the way we refer to ourselves in witnessing. Well, I'm a follower of Christ. I'd like to invite you to be a follower of Christ. In fact, uh, in verse 43, this is exactly what Jesus says to Philip. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. So the idea is right here again, even in this chapter. What does it mean to, to follow Jesus, by the way? Um, even that word is being used metaphorically. We're not, just, we're not just physically following Jesus, right? To be a follower of Jesus has something more to it. Um, in this story, the, the actual strict narrative of it is that they were following him. Jesus was walking, and the two disciples heard him, and they followed Jesus. 
So they're physically following him down some path or whatever along the river. And Jesus turns and sees them following, physically following. But this word is freighted with extra meaning. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? It doesn't mean that we physically follow him down the road because he's not physically here anymore. But what it means, as all of you know, is that we emulate his character. We obey his teachings. We model ourselves after him. We seek to be everything that he was. To be a follower of Christ is to try to be like Christ. Uh, this word follow might be uh, weakened a little bit nowadays with uh, those of you with Twitter accounts and, and you follow people. Well, what does that mean when you follow somebody on Twitter? It means you're, you know, you have some interest or respect for the person and think they say witty things or insightful things. And so you follow them on Twitter so you can see what their latest tweets were. Oh, that was a good one. Did you see what so-and-so tweeted about the game, you know, or whatever it might be. But that's, there's not much commitment in following someone on Twitter. I mean, you can just unfollow them anytime you want, okay? And you might follow some people on Twitter that you think are idiots and you, you make fun of the things they tweet. Uh, but... We can't follow Jesus that way, can we? No, we've got to uh, submit to his authority, to, of his words and of his actions and of his character and seek to emulate it in every way we can. So the two disciples are already following and what do you seek is the first utterance of Jesus. So what's the big deal about that? Well, in excellent literature, and this applies to movies as well, Often when, when a story is well-crafted, the first scene of someone and what they're doing or the first words of a person are pretty important. Often they're freighted with meaning. Uh, the writer is trying to give you a clue by the first thing an important character might, might be uh, seen to be doing or, or to say. And so Jesus' first words in this gospel are this question that he asked these would-be disciples who are already following him, and he turned around and saw that and noticed that they were already following him. And so he turns to them and he says, what do you seek? Well, if you have the NIV and maybe some other versions, it doesn't read what do you seek, it reads what do you want? And you see how the translators are dealing with the very issue I'm confronting you with today. Are we going to read this mundane or profound? Which way is it? Um, because if you read it in the mundane way, Jesus is walking along the path, he notices these two guys following him, he turns around and says, what do you guys want? I mean, just, just like you might ask anybody following you on the street. The NASB and some other translations choose to give it the more profound meaning. What do you seek? It's the Greek word zeteo. Now given who's asking the question, given the setting that we've already talked about, given that it's the first utterance of the word who's become flesh, don't you think his first words might be pretty important? So I think Jesus turned to them and with a penetrating look said, what do you seek? And it just was carrying all kinds of meaning. What are you guys doing out here? Following this wild-eyed prophet who's eating locusts and wild honey, <laughs> looking like a wild man. Well, what are you doing out here? Why did you submit to his baptism? 
How come you're out here with this whole crowd? How come you're the extra zealous ones that are tagging along right behind that guy? Why did you follow me when he said that I'm something special? What are you really after? What is it you really want? What do you profoundly need? What do you seek? I think that's what he's asking them. Now, this is a key word in John's Gospel. He uses this word uh, many, many times. It's used by the narrator. It's used by Jesus. It's used by others. So let me give you a, just a quick tour of some of the uses of the Greek word zeteo in John's Gospel that's usually translated seek. Uh, it's used 33 times. I'm not going to give you all of those. All right. John's Gospel, by the way, contains many favorite words or key words such as life, light, glory, truth, signs, believe, uh, witness, and hour. And seek is certainly another of these key words. So, for instance, in chapter 5, Jesus seeks not his own will, but the will of him who sent him. He also seeks not his own glory, but seeks the glory of him who sent him. The Father seeks true worshipers, who will worship him in spirit and in truth in John 4. Also, the Father seeks the glory of Jesus in John 8. The Jews or the Jewish leaders characteristically over and over seek to kill Jesus. It occurs several times. Or they seek to arrest him with the implied hope of seeing him killed. So you can seek in good ways or bad ways in this gospel. And the way it's continually used helps to shape us as readers what are, what, are we, you know, what do you seek? I mean, that, that's Jesus' original question. And then he gives us all these examples of the use of the word that's going to shape us. Well, I shouldn't seek that. Well, maybe I should seek more this way. And so he's, he's, he's discipling us by the way he wrote uh, his gospel. The word seek is also used of the Jews looking for Jesus at the feasts. Jesus rebuked the Jews because they received glory from one another, but did not seek glory from the one God. Now, here's where it really gets interesting. Toward the end of the story, John 18, just before his crucifixion, the arresting mob was asked twice by Jesus, whom do you seek? That's what he asked him. He asked, what do you seek? Very first words. Now he's saying to these guys, just before his crucifixion, whom do you seek? You remember what they said? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. You remember what he said? I am. That's what he said, literally. Ego eimi, the Greek, Greek words, I am. And what happened when he said, I am? Do you remember? They fell back on their keisters. The whole crowd of them, they just, boom, they fell over. Why would that happen? Because he revealed to them in that moment what the, what the, the narrator in the prologue told us in the very first verse, that he's, that he's the word who is God. When he said, I am, it was echoing Exodus 3.14 to them. Uh, Moses says, who shall I say sent me? I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. Jesus, they, Jesus says, whom do you seek? Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. I am. In other words, I'm way more than what you're looking for. You're seeking, you're seeking a human guy that's causing you troubles and you want to get out of some political mess. Well, here's who I am. I am. <laughs> Exodus 3.14. I'm, I'm, I'm God. That's what he's saying to them. And the power of those words knocked them over. Jesus cleans his fingernails, waits for them to get back up, and then repeats the question, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> Maybe he was shaking their boots this time. 
And, and he basically said, all right, well, I'm going to cooperate. Let's, let's go. And on they went. So the one they sought was infinitely more than they supposed. And only through his willing submission did that throng of armed men take away the one whom God had sent. And in one final instance of seek in this gospel, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb on the first day of the week after the crucifixion and was distraught that the body of Jesus was missing. She did not recognize the missing Jesus when he said to her in chapter 20, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? There it is repeated again. Good writing uses repetition. And this, this question of Jesus, what do you seek? Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? Is repeated. It's ironic, isn't it? Mary comes with sorrow, seeking a corpse to possess, and is confronted by the risen Lord, who is soon to ascend. She's looking for a corpse. She finds the risen Lord. She's full of sorrow, but it's really an occasion for joy. So, even if we miss it in the first reading of John 1, 35-39, after we, you know, as, as we read along the rest of the gospel and see this key word seek being used over and over, uh, if, if we're good readers, we'll retroactively start thinking, wait a minute, is it, hey, there might have been something going on more than I realized back there. And then in our second and third and, and 20th and 100th reading, we ought to just be milking this for, for all the more uh, content and meaning as well. All right, now, the third uh, C under, under Roman numeral three, the disciples reply by inquiring, where are you abiding? All right, now, even in the New American Standard Bible that I used, that it actually says, where are you staying? But it's the Greek word meno, and meno is translated stay, remain, or abide throughout most of the Gospels, okay? So most translations say, where are you staying? And... From the disciples' perspective, I get what the, why the translators did that. Because from the disciples' uh, perspective, uh, one of the themes of the Gospels is the misunderstanding of the disciples. I mean, Jesus says something profound, they misunderstand, and he has to explain it. That happens over and over in all the Gospels, okay? So from the perspective of the disciples, they probably were saying it in a mundane way, but they used a key word in saying it that can be translated in different ways, and so for us as maturing disciples, we can key into that and say, hey, wait a minute, there's another level going on here. They might just be saying, hey, where are you hanging out today? But they said, they used the word meno, where are you abiding? That's a pretty important teaching in this gospel. It's another key word that we could look at uh, in several places, but I'm just going to take you to, the, to the, the main place where it's used that some of you will remember, which is John chapter 15. In the, in the uh, farewell discourse, just before he was arrested and then crucified, um, he had a lot of things to say to them that last night that he was with them. So let's look at uh, chapter 15, verses 4 through 10. And you're going to hear abide, abide, abide all through this passage. It's the same word as when they say, where are you staying or where are you abiding? He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me, 
and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Wow. Okay, that's a lot of uses of abide just in a few verses. It's a very important teaching of Jesus. And so, what are the, you know, so think about who we're dealing with. Uh, these are would-be first disciples of Jesus. And he asks, what are you seeking? And they say, where are you abiding? So here's part of my big idea here. I think John constructed this intentionally to be a paradigm of discipleship. What should we be seeking? He puts, he puts the words in their mouths, you know. Or I, mean, I, mean, I believe they really said this, but I think they were saying more than they knew, which happens a lot of times in this gospel as well. Like Caiaphas says, it's expedient that one man should die for the nation. As high priest, he was speaking a word of prophecy. He was saying more than he knew, right? And so I think that's what's happening back here as well. What, what, should, be the, what should be the thing that it's a true disciple really seeks? the abiding presence of Jesus. That's what we should seek. Okay? Not just getting saved, but we should seek the abiding presence of Jesus. We should want to be with Jesus. Just tight with Him, in obedience to Him, never do anything He wouldn't want us to do, and just enjoying His presence and, and uh, dependent upon His power for everything that we do all the time. John 15 helps to, to make that point. So then Jesus invites them to come and you will see. Where are you staying? Come and you will see. Well, when we invite people to learn about Jesus, uh, meet him, believe in him, we're following his example. Jesus was an, was an inviter. He came to, to draw people in. And so he's inviting them. Well, hey, come and you will see. And there's kind of a wink there to the reader like, <laughs> They have no idea what they're in for. I mean, uh, they just, you know, maybe they're at the mundane level. Yeah, we just kind of want to hang out with you. And he's saying, you know, come and, and, and you'll see. Hint, more than you ever imagined. In verse 46 of the same chapter, Philip invites Nathaniel to come and see. He says, hey, we found the one who, who Moses talked about, the Messiah. And, uh, well, really, where is he from? Uh, Nazareth. What, what, good, what good thing could ever come from Nazareth? Come and see, was the response. Where did he learn that? He got that from Jesus. We can get a lot of good stuff from Jesus. So if you're a follower of Christ, follow him in this example as well. Be an inviter. Okay? And then uh, E on the, in the outline, the disciples abide with Jesus and it's the tenth hour. Let me go back to that. There it is, yeah. So, at the very end there. So they came and saw where he was staying, or abiding, and they stayed or abided with him that day. For it was about the 10th hour. All right, if it was Roman time, then that was about 10 a.m. Uh, is that really what's important here? What time of day it was? Um, I mean, this is historically true, and so maybe he was just telling us what time it was. But if, we're, if we 
if we're exploring this deeper reading, what might be the significance of the tenth hour? Well, in, in uh, the Hebrew mind, uh, ten was a number of completion. I mean, with our system, uh, ten's a pretty important number as well, right? As a round number, let's just make a ten, right? So it's a number of completion. It's a number of fulfillment. So it could be that what John was trying to say here to us is, so they went and saw where he was abiding. And they abided with him that day. And it was the best time ever. He said, come and you will see. Man, did they see. I mean, they were blown away by Jesus. It was the most fulfilling time they'd ever had. All, what were they seeking? This, now they know. This is what they were seeing. We didn't even know what we were looking for before. Now we know because we've come and we've seen. That's what I think is going on there. And I, I, I would acknowledge you that, that a symbolic reading of the phrase the tenth hour is probably the most controversial interpretation of anything I've given you today. Uh, most of the rest of that's pretty solid. This one is like, mm, for some interpreters, be, eh, that's a bridge too far, Bradley. I think you're trying to stretch it a little bit too far. But, uh, you know, once we've gone as far as the rest of it, I think, I think there's some likelihood that, that uh, John meant it that way. And uh, if you disagree with me on that, we can still be friends, okay? So, last thing we've got to do then is <clears throat> apply the deeper meaning to yourself and your friends. So, what do you seek? I mean, really, what do you seek? What are you really looking for in life? Are you seeking a two-year-old used car with about 30 miles, 30,000 miles on, pretty clean, straight chassis, and gets good gas mileage? Are you seeking a split-level home with a nice fence backyard? Are you seeking some really nice weed? Are you seeking some pure crystal meth? Are you seeking a marriageable bachelor or your next sexual conquest? Are you seeking a better paid job with benefits? What, what are you seeking? There's, you know, some of the things in that list are okay to seek. Some of those things in that list are not okay to seek. What's the best thing you could seek? The abiding presence of Jesus. For that to be the most important thing in your life. Look, honey, if I lose my job, whatever, we still got Jesus. Okay? Uh, if we lose our child at childbirth, man, give him Jesus. That's good pastoral care and ministry by Michael this week. Because if we've got Jesus, we're going we're gonna to be all right. I've never made a good study of Revelation. We've got a, a professor at our campus who's a total expert at it. And I feel bad I can't even have a good conversation with him because I just, I just haven't gotten into Revelation much at all. For me, it's just, you know, I know who wins and I'm with him and the rest is details that people argue about and I don't, I don't, I'm not that worried about it, frankly, okay? Confession. Uh, I've got a kind of a simplistic disciple's view of that one. I'm going to abide with Jesus and he wins and we'll, we'll, we'll be all right. So what do you seek? Were you just seeking salvation? Did you just want the asbestos swimming suit? Is that all this Christian life is, is for you? Is just, why well, I just don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. And, but I want to do what I want the rest of the time. Uh, so lay off me. Well, that's not what, that's not what Christianity is about. It's not, that's not the deal. The deal is to, to get to know Jesus so intimately that you're abiding with him that he's your whole life. And so don't... Don't sell yourself short. Jesus says, come and you will see. Are you seeing? 
the depth and beauty and glory that he has to offer? Or is this like, yeah, and I'm a Christian too. You know, I'm going to have this and this and this, and I love to do all these things, yeah, and, I'm a, and I'm a Christian. That means I get to go to heaven when I die. No, it should, it should be the defining thing of your life. It should, just, it should uh, encompass everything for you. Uh, when I was a pastor in Pullman, Washington for 17 years, uh, just because of the nature of it being a university town, Pac-10 and Pac-12 now, you know, we got to meet some pretty hotshot people there because of, of the university being there. And uh, we got to know the, the head basketball coach uh, at one point, who's, who's now, he's now with the Clippers. Uh, he kind of got attached to Doc Rivers. He was with him in uh, Boston. He came with him to the, uh, uh, to the Clippers. And now he's just fairly recently was named Vice President of Basketball Operations. Kevin Eastman is his name. And uh, they came to church a few times, and uh, we had them to our home for uh, Easter dinner. Um, so I shared with both of them quite a bit, but more with his wife, Wendy. And one time I, I met Wendy, public place, Starbucks, to talk more about things, and she was really interested. And, and, and here's what she said. She said, you know, I've been in church a lot in my life. I think she had like Episcopalian background or something. But it was just kind of surface churchiness is what she mostly experienced. And she said, the thing I've noticed about you and, and people in your church is that, I mean, like you guys are really into it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like it's the defining thing of your lives or something. I've just never really encountered that before. I said, well, that's how it's supposed to be, <laughs> Wendy. That's what we're inviting you to, Okay. It should be the defining thing of your life. So, so how about it? How about defining your life through this? Well, she, she wasn't ready to do that. I don't know where they're at now. But, uh, but it, was, it was nice that she noticed, you know, because that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. So what do you seek? Are you abiding in Christ? One of the most practical ways I practice abiding in Christ is, is through scripture memory and review. I mean, quoting you that prologue, and that's one of several passages I can quote and a lot of other just individual verses and stuff. Uh, just reviewing scripture like that, it's a way that just keeps me right with Jesus. I mean, I'm thinking about his words and, and, and the word of God, and, uh, I, you know, my mind can wander to things it shouldn't wander to, but when I'm in the scripture, then it keeps me uh, right where I'm supposed to be. Uh, a great discipleship writer, Dallas Willard, said, uh, you'll not likely fall into sin while you're muttering scripture. And he's, he's alluding to Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, uh, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. So, uh, abiding Christ. And then the last application is, when you witness, what are you inviting people to do? Um, I think others of you have, have surely noticed that that the state of Christianity in our world today, in America certainly, is generally pretty anemic. You know, uh, where are the really committed Christians? Why why are churches uh, underfinanced and understaffed in the nursery and all the all the perennial problems we have in our churches? Well, I think one of the problems can be what have we been inviting people to in our evangelism? If we invite people to get saved, if we invite them to get their name written in the book of life. And that's it. Praise the Lord. The angels are having a party in heaven because you're, now you're saved and you've got your name in the book of life. If that's all we invite them to, then why should we be surprised if we don't see much devotion and passion and service out of them? So let's make sure we're inviting people to become followers of Jesus and explain to them what that means. 
I mean, you're gonna, you, you get saved. And I'm not talking about, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not giving you an alternative gospel that's works-based. No, we're saved by the, grace of, by the grace of God through what Christ accomplished on the cross. There's no other way we can be saved. But what are we inviting people to do? Just to receive that gift and that's all? Or we invite them to become followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, disciple is a learner. So that's what we need to invite people to, to, to do and to be. And as we do that, if we can have a generation of evangelism that's inviting people to that, then it will draw more commitment out of people and it will cause us to be more likely to be sharing our faith and uh, to support the ministries with our, our labor and our work and our finances and, and our prayers and everything else. So think about what you're inviting people to. Invite them to church. Invite them to hear your great preacher, Pastor, Pastor Michael. Invite them to an event you're having. Invite them to your Super Bowl party where you're going to try to share a little testimony at halftime. You know, do all those things. But when it comes down to conversion time, don't just invite them to accept salvation. Invite them to become a follower of Jesus Christ, to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. All right? Let me say a prayer and I'll turn it over to Michael. Father, I thank you for this congregation, and uh, I remember well uh, early days of my ministry at Beaver Creek Baptist Church in that musty old Grange Hall, and I just thank you, God, for uh, the adults and children, families that have already gathered to the river, and I pray that, uh, that this small congregation will have faith to see that they are the beginning of something that can be very significant in the lives of many more people in this area. Father, thank you for all the relationships that are represented in this room, uh, the people that these people know that perhaps no other follower of Christ knows. And we pray that you will help us to, to see the opportunities before us to uh, invite people to this church to advance and to be followers of you. Father, help us to learn how better to abide in Christ day by day. And we pray that as we do that, we'll experience that power and fruitfulness that he spoke of himself in John chapter 15. Father, thank you for uh, Pastor Michael and Cheryl and, and their family and, and just pray that you will anoint them and bless them in their leadership of this congregation. Thank you for all those who are already serving and are totally committed here. And we pray that uh, the numbers will grow for the sake of impacting more people with the gospel, which will magnify your glory all the more, God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
God may be calling me to do.